Well, it's always good seeing you guys. We'll jump back in Joel. My goal is just to make it through chapter one. And I think we can, but I don't know. We'll see. And if we don't, we don't, and that's okay. Um, but it should be, should be good. Let me pray, and then we'll jump in. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are merciful. Or even just as we look at Joel, we're just reminded of um, circumstances and events that you bring about by your providence are never um, just brought about, just for bringing them about, but you have a purpose in them. Lord, I pray that um, as we look at Joel, that we would learn from that, that we would see your meticulous sovereignty in all things, and that we would learn from it and apply it to our own lives, that we would see um, your wrath and judgment against sin and be warned against it and be warned to turn away and to run to you in repentance and faith. Lord, I just pray for tonight that as we look in Joel, try to finish chapter one, that it would be ultimately for your glory. I pray that you would bless this time in your name we pray. Amen. All right, well, it's always good to, to see you guys. I'm going to do some quick review real quick, and then we'll jump into Joel. Like I said, so Joel 1, 4, all the way to Joel 1, 20. I feel like we can do it, but I don't know. We'll, we'll see what happens. So um, last week, we looked at historical context, right? I argued Joel is probably one of the uh, earliest prophetic books, right? So maybe even before Isaiah. Um, Isaiah's written early, Jonah's written early, um, so there's a good, strong chance that Joel is one of the first, um, and he would be, um, you know, kind of paving the way, laying the foundation for those those other guys. And I, I, I realized I, afterwards, I was talking to Natalie, and I was like, man, I, I wonder if, like, sometimes I just feel like what I'm saying, it's like, does even anyone know what I'm saying? That's, that's just me, because I can't listen to myself talk at all, but I was like, man, I think I could have done a better job on the historical context and just kind of think through, like, like, why belabor the point? It's like, okay, we don't really know what's going on. We can't really nail it down. Like, what's the big deal about historical context? And I would just say is that when, when you actually know the context and the situation that the writer is in and the purpose as to why he's writing, it really sharpens the content and kind of gives it more punch. Like a really simple example, right? Second Timothy. What's, what's the context of Second Timothy? No. Like what is it? It's Paul's last letter, okay? He's in jail, about to be put to death, and he's writing this letter to Timothy. Okay, you have that in the back of your mind. You're like, whoa. This adds more to what he's saying. You see what I'm saying? Like he's like, this guy's about to die. These are his last words of Paul. That adds a lot more when you're reading, you know, 2 Timothy 4, 6, you know, I have fought the good fight, I've kept the faith, you know, henceforth there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, and, you know, he's calling Timothy to endure. You see how that adds more to what he's saying? And so that's why, you know, when we belabor historical context, it's not just, oh, okay, cool. It's actually knowing, okay, wow, one, these are historical events, these are real people, this actually really happened, but it gives, it gives the book more punch. Does that make sense? So that, that's why we belabor that point. Um, and so with Joel being written early, um, that especially adds to, okay, Joel really talks a lot about the day of the Lord, okay? That's one of the main things, if not the main thing he talks about 
And so when we see language that Joel uses picked up in Isaiah or in Jeremiah or um, Amos, for example, you see him a lot in Amos, it adds more to what those prophets are doing. Does that make sense? And so I didn't want to belabor that point again, but that's why we spend time on historical context. Then we talked about the theological theme of the book, which is the day of the Lord, right? The day of the Lord. And if you guys are like, we talked about it for 15 minutes, I still have no idea what the day of the Lord is. Hey, that's okay. That's why we're here in this class, because Joel spills the most ink out of any writers in the Old Testament and the New Testament on the day of the Lord. So if you're like, hey, I don't know what the day of the Lord is, that's why we're here. And Lord willing, if we get to Joel 1.15 tonight, we're actually going to talk about the day of the Lord, okay? So I'm going to do a quick recap. If you have those notes, Joel 1, I'm just walking through again. Have your Bibles out. We're going to be turning, especially, did anyone do the homework? Does anyone, actually, before I say, did anyone do the homework? Does anyone even remember what the homework was from last week? That's what, yes, which chapters? Yes, and 30. Did you do it, Travis? Hey, that's okay. That's okay. We're going to do it together. I'm just glad someone remembered the homework, okay? Uh, especially Deuteronomy 28 and 30. We're going to spend some, spend some time there, okay? But Joel, he's writing, I would argue, 9th or 8th century B.C., the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. We don't know who this guy is in particular. Uh, it's one of the shortest uh, prophetic introductions next to Jonah. He calls the elders in verse 2. Hear this, you elders, the leaders of the land. Give ear all inhabitants. He's summoning everyone. He's calling them much like Isaiah does in chapter 1. Remember that? Hear this, O heavens. Give ear, O earth. He's calling, if Isaiah is calling the, uh, the witnesses to the stand, Joel is summoning the guilty party, right? He's calling them to go back to the covenant, Deuteronomy uh, 28. He says, has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? We've never seen anything like this. Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. You see on and on and on and on that they are supposed to take this event and they're supposed to pass it down. Not only, hey, this happened, but what, here's why it happened, right? The significance of the event, okay? And you come down, this is where we left off, verse four. Very, very important interpretive issue for the book of Joel. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust is eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust is eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. This is a major interpretive issue. Are these real or are they symbolic locusts? And we talked about it a little bit. What do we think? They're real locusts. They are real locusts, and we had a number of arguments. It's the, locusts are the most frequent mentioned insect in the Old Testament. You guys don't remember that? There's actually nine or ten different words in Hebrew referring to some type of locust. Okay? There's a lot of words that they will use to describe these flying insects. Okay? And so these are just some. I'm just going to go through real quick. Number one, reasons as to why we would argue that they're real locusts. Locusts are always real in the rest of the Old Testament. I mean, if you start doing this and say, oh, they're symbolic here, well, what gives us then license to go back to Exodus 10, right? The eighth plague on Egypt. You remember what it was? Locusts. So if those are real, then are we going to say, well, these are symbolic, but these aren't. You see what I'm saying? We're, we're into an interpretive issue there. How do we, how do we know? Number two, uh, and we'll see this throughout Joel 1. The emphasis is on the agricultural damage done. So other um, scholars, what they'll say is that he's using locusts symbolically to refer to a 
nation like the Assyrians or the Babylonians or something like that, and they'll say, um, you know, hey, he's just using locusts symbolically. Well, in Joel 1, um, the damage that is done is predominantly agricultural, right? When an army comes in to, you know, destroy a nation, what do they typically do? Like, yes, they do that, but primarily they, like, kill you. They burn all your buildings. Like, they do all these horrible things, right? They will do the agricultural stuff, and there actually is, we're going to see this as we move throughout Joel, that he actually is wanting us to see uh, kind of the locust as a precursor of a greater judgment to come. That's very, very important. Um, but the emphasis would be primarily on the agricultural damage. Uh, number three, when the Bible wants to speak of symbolic locusts, it specifies, right? So we looked at Revelation chapter 9. Revelation 9, 7 has that, you know, I think it's after the fifth trumpet or the fifth bowl. It's one of those judgments. And you just got this crazy imagery, right? Like he's like, I saw locusts and they had the hair of women and a face like this. And you're just like, what in the world? Like very clearly symbolic because he says their appearance was like this. It was like this, right? So it's not literally a locust, but it's some type of crazy thing. And we'll, Lord willing, look at that later on. Okay. But number four, and this is where we left off. Number four, why they are real locusts is because it best fits Joel's use of Deuteronomy. Okay. It best fits Joel's use of Deuteronomy. And this is very important. Joel is walking through what's going on in Israel, what's going on in God's land and amongst God's people with Deuteronomic spectacles. You're like, what in the world? Basically, what I'm saying is that he's interpreting the events around him with the book of Deuteronomy open. Does that make sense? Right? He's taking Deuteronomy and saying, oh, this makes sense as to why this is happening. Okay? So that's contextually very important. So with this, none of you did the homework. You all failed. It's okay. Turn to Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28. So if Joel is walking through Deuteronomy and applying it to the current historical situation, let's actually see what he's doing there. If you guys remember Deuteronomy 28, the first, well, even before that, let's back up, okay? The first generation to whom the law was given, they all died out, right? Because they all sinned, okay? So Deuteronomy, you guys, does anyone even know what Deuteronomy stands for? Second law, right? The second giving of the law. The law is being given again through Moses to the second generation to see if they will succeed where the first generation did not. And so you come to the end of Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy 28, you see these in the ESV, right? The subtitles, blessings for obedience, right? If you obey the stipulations of the Mosaic covenant, right? You know, we're thinking back to Exodus 20, 10 commandments, all those regulations. If you obey these things, you're going to be blessed. And you've got 14 verses detailing that. But then you come to curses for disobedience in Deuteronomy 28, verse 15, and you go, whoa, I even have to turn the page, and I go to verse 68 before that even stops. So the text already, even before, you know, historically, we're still hundreds of years away from Joel and Isaiah and all this stuff. The text is already pointing us to the implication, what's going to happen? Are they going to obey or disobey? Disobey, right? But let's actually read what some of these curses are, okay? If you come down to, let's start in... Verse 38, Deuteronomy 28, 38. He's listed all these curses, and notice what he says here. You shall carry much seed into the field and shall gather in little for the what? 
the locust shall consume it. You're going to plant all these things. Um, you know, verse 40, or you shall have oil trees, all this stuff. Verse 41, you shall father sons and daughters, but they shall not be yours, for they shall go into captivity. Verse 42, the cricket, another word for locust, okay? So twice here, what has he said? If you disobey, what's going to happen? What type of insect is going to come? The locust, okay? Jewish reader in Joel's day is reading or hearing the message of Joel proclaimed audibly the cutting locust, the swarming locust, the hopping locust, the destroying locust, over and over and over and over again. What do you think Joel is trying to say? Hey, guys, the stipulations of the covenant, you've sinned, what's, what's come? The locusts. The locusts aren't random, right? It's not just random. In the Old Testament readers, understand this, okay? Keep reading. You come down to um, verse 49, and this is significant. It says, the Lord will bring a nation against you from far away. So if locusts are first, Moses is also arguing here, all this stuff is going to come. The end of all this, the worst thing is exile, okay? The worst thing, you're going to have uh, there's going to be famine in the land. There's going to be drought. You're um, going to be defeated in battle. Locusts are going to come. And at the end of all this, you're going to be taken into exile. And he uses this imagery of a nation. And this is important because Joel picks up on this, this imagery of a nation coming. Verse 51, notice this here. It says, this nation, okay, he's not talking about locusts now. He's talking about a foreign invader. It shall eat the offspring of your cattle and the fruit of your ground until you are destroyed. It also should not leave you grain, wine, or oil. Try and remember that. Maybe underline those because they'll show up in Joel. Grain, wine, or oil, the increase of your herds or the young of your flock until they have caused you to perish. Okay, so this nation is going to leave famine just like the locusts. And so you start to see these similarities between the locusts and the foreign invader. You guys tracking with me there? Joel is going to pick up on that. He's intentionally making that connection. And so he goes on, um, you know, verse 58, if you're not careful to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring on you and your offspring extraordinary afflictions, afflictions severe and lasting and sicknesses, grievous and lasting. He will bring upon you again all the diseases of Egypt. Okay, well, we already mentioned that. What was the eighth plague? Locusts to Egypt. God's saying here he's going to bring those plagues to Israel. And what has he done in Joel's day? He's brought the locusts, okay? I can't go, I, I, time-wise, we can't spend more time in Deuteronomy 28, but he, if you read it carefully, contextually, you're going to see all these connections that Joel is making. Another one is darkness, right? Remember the, um, the plague right before the death of the firstborn? What was it? Darkness, right? So thick like you could touch it, I think is what even Exodus says. Joel is going to pick up on that. He's quoting and just going back to Deuteronomy 28. You guys track with me on that? He's preaching Deuteronomy 28. You flip over to Deuteronomy 30, flip over to Deuteronomy 30, and Joel is saying, because this is coming, you need to repent. Turn from your sin, okay? Turn from your sin. Stop disobeying. If you obey the Lord, blessing will actually come. And he actually is even, in Deuteronomy 30, you see this. Deuteronomy 30, verse 1. Moses says, when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, okay? So these curses are going to come. But after this is going to come blessing. You jump down to verse four. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord will gather you 
and from there he will take you, right? So Deuteronomy 30 is implying exile, right? Israel is not going to be in the land, but the Lord is going to bring them back to the land. Verse 5, the Lord your God will bring you into the land. There it is, that your fathers possess, that you may possess it. He'll make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. It's going to be a glorious day for Israel in the land, unlike anything we've ever seen before. Verse 6, and the reason why all this can happen is because Israel has a heart problem that the Lord is going to fix. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live, okay? So Joel, in context, he's going back to Deuteronomy 20, Deuteronomy 30. He's preaching that to them. Hey, look, this has come because you have disobeyed, okay? In light of that, you need to repent. And also, if you repent, hold out hope that the Lord will restore you. He's going to give you a new heart. He's going to bring you back to land. You guys see that? And it's not only Deuteronomy. I thought this was very interesting. Turn to 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 8. Yes. Joel's picking up what Moses has written. Yeah. Yeah, Moses is saying these things are going to happen to you. And and you see that not only, I, I wouldn't say it's fulfilled in Joel. I would say Deuteronomy 28, especially the curses, you see played out like through all the books of the prophets, like Isaiah, all this stuff. Because ultimately what happens, right? You guys remember this? Okay, what were the two dates? If you guys remember last week, the two dates of exile. These are important. What's that? 5A6, boom. Okay, and what nation takes the southern kingdom captive? Babylon, yes. Okay, anyone remember the first one? 722, and what nation? Assyria, okay. So Assyria in 722 takes the northern kingdom, 586 Babylon takes the southern kingdom. So in that sense, yeah, Deuteronomy 28 saying, hey, all these bad things are going to happen to you, famine, drought, uh, locusts, you know, all this stuff. The end of that is exile, okay? The exile came. Now the question you have to ask yourself as a careful reader is you're going, okay, and I'm getting off topic, uh, off topic but it's important. No, it's okay, it's okay. You have to ask yourself as a discerning reader, okay, that happened. But Deuteronomy 30 promises that they'll go back to the land. It's going to be a glorious future for Israel, and they're never going to be withdrawn from the land again. Did that happen? No, right? Because if you read Ezra and Nehemiah, like we're, you know, we're all suffering together through Scripture. You know, it's like this list of names, all this stuff on Sunday mornings. You actually have to realize that Ezra and Nehemiah are very pessimistic books. They're not books that you're going, wow, this is great. Like, the, yeah, the nation comes back, and it's like, what is it, like 70,000 people? It's like, Bakersfield's way bigger than that. That's nothing, okay? And then I think, what was it, last week or two weeks ago? What you have where it's like only one out of ten of the Levites even wanted to live in Jerusalem? Like, what in the world? Like, this is God's city, isn't this? They should all be flocking to God's city, okay? And so you have to ask yourself, wait a minute. Has exile for Israel ended? I would argue, no, Israel is still in exile to this very day. And that actually begins to make sense of the exilic language of the New Testament, right? I mean, even First Peter talking about elect exile, okay, of the dispersion, right? You, talk about, you go to Acts 8, and you see, you know, the people are brought back, you know, you have, you know, Pentecost, all this glorious stuff, the beginning of the church. But then you have in Acts 8, what happens? They leave Jerusalem. They actually go out. Well, that's good. The gospel must go out to all the nations, as Matthew 28 says. 
but actually the prophets have been very clear that they're going to go out and they're going to come back in. Does that make sense? So you have to ask yourself, has Deuteronomy 30 been fulfilled maybe in its completeness is maybe one way I would get around. And I would say, no, actually we're still awaiting that. Does that make sense? So it's an important question. Um, no, it's okay. Very, very good. Okay, 1 Kings 8. 1 Kings 8. So Moses is saying, hey, all these you know, blessings will happen if you obey. All these curses will happen if you disobey. 1 Kings 8, if you have time, this is a glorious chapter to read. This is when um, the temple has been built. Uh, Solomon comes. It is an amazing sermon that Solomon gives. Okay, 1 Kings 8. 1 Kings 4 to 10, I would argue, is like the high point of Israel's existence in one sense. Like, it is a glorious time. Okay, 1 Kings 4 to 10. Okay, but 1 Kings 8, look at what Solomon does here. Um, in verse 37, 1 Kings 8, verse 37, if there's famine in the land, or if there is pestilence or blight or mildew or locusts or caterpillar, another, another word we use for locusts or the Hebrews do, if their enemy besieges them in the land at their gates, and see, even there you see locusts and, uh, you know, like a, a a warring nation put together there, right? Whatever, if their enemy besieges them in the land at their gates, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart and stretching out his hands towards this house, then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each whose heart you know. What is Solomon saying? Years after Deuteronomy, maybe, you know, four, you know, four, well, less than that. Let's just say 400 years, okay? If this happens, the curses come because of your disobedience. If locusts come, what should they do? Cry out to the Lord, repent, right? That's what they should do. According to all his ways, verse 40, that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land that you gave to our fathers. So Joel, what's he doing? He's not doing anything new or crazy. He's going back to Solomon, who's going back to Moses, and he's saying this is clearly what God's word has called us to do. We've sinned, we cry out to the Lord, we repent. You see that? You see what Joel is doing there? How he's reading his Old Testament, as we all should, right? That's what's going on, okay? So verse four, with the cutting locust has left, like I said, this is devastation like never before seen, just wave after wave after wave of locust. This is unparalleled. And the careful reader needs to say, why? What's going on here? What does God want us to do, okay? That's what's going on. Verse five, and what Joel's going to do here He's going to address three groups in society, okay, in, in the next verses, okay? So you could start with, he's going to start with the drunkards. No, great place to start. The drunkards, and he's going to go to the priests, and he's going to go to the farmers, okay? So he's hitting everyone, the highs and the lows, right? Which actually makes sense because what does he say in verse 2, right? Hear this, you elders, the leaders, and all inhabitants of the land, okay? So now he's addressing those groups, okay? He's saying, hey, here's what you need to do, okay? So number one, the drunkards. He says, awake, awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail. So he's calling them, you know, three imperatives. Hey, you need to do this. All you drinkers of wine, get sober. Wake up. Why? Because the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. You're not going to have any more wine to get drunk with. And you guys, we just read verse four. Why? Why is it gone? It's not true. They're locusts. You know, if, you know, like the Sunday school answer is like, what's the answer? Jesus. Like typically with this one, what's the answer? Locusts, okay? Like locusts is the answer. It's like, maybe I'll pull a fast one on you. But, but typically it's locusts, okay? The locusts, right? 
the locusts have come and they have done this, for it is cut off from your mouth. And we're going to see this actually in verse 9, the significance of this. We don't get it because we're the church and the new covenant. We don't see this as much. But if you don't have drink, they can't perform the drink offering. You guys remember that from Leviticus, right? So like what they need to worship God, they literally don't have. So like think about, I'm jumping ahead of myself, but think about, you know, if you come to church and it's like, hey, we literally cannot preach because we have no Bibles. We cannot sing songs because we have no instruments and we all lost our voice. Like, that's pretty significant, right? Like, that church service is going to look pretty different. We literally can't worship the Lord rightly. That should wake you up, right? That's significant. That's what's going on here. First, he's addressing the drunkards. I'm getting ahead of myself. It's cut off from your mouth. This is why you need to wake up. Verse 6, 4, explaining that verse, for a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. So here, this is significant. I can't spend too much time here, but here you see the locusts represented as a mighty warring nation. You guys see that, right? For a nation, what's he referring to? Going back to the locusts. I mentioned this. If you have time, go on YouTube. Just type in locust invasion. It's crazy. It looks like a nation, and you can't do anything about it, right? I mean, it is just... The locusts come, they eat absolutely everything. You cannot stop them. It is crazy. And so he's teasing this out. If you jump over to chapter 2, Joel 2, verse 25, he actually talks about, um, he puts in the same verse, uh, the locusts and a mighty nation. Okay? He's wanting us to see that the locusts are a precursor or a preview of coming attractions. And by coming attractions, I actually mean it's not attractive at all. Okay? But he's wanting them to see, hey, this happened. Get ready for this, okay? For nation has come up against my land. They've done all this. And I want you to notice this too. What does he say? Verse six, my land, okay? Jump down to verse seven. It's laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. Okay, Joel is speaking, but he's speaking the word of the Lord. So who's the one possessing these things? Whose land is it? The Lord's, right? Not a trick question. It is the Lord's. It is not the locust, yeah, yeah. It is the Lord's land. It is the Lord's vine. It is the Lord's fig tree. This is important. Israel is not only God's chosen people. The land of Israel is God's chosen land. Okay? There is an enduring significance to the land of, you know, what we'd say is, you know, Palestine sometimes, where Israel as a nation exists today. That's significant. That is the Lord's chosen land. You see this in Ezekiel 38 and Isaiah uh, chapter 5, right, when Isaiah starts talking about, um, you know, the vineyard of the Lord, he's talking about the land of Israel, and there's continuing significance even today to the land, not only the people. But verse 7, he says, it's laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree, right? You see this, I mean, this is clearly locust, right? They're the ones doing this devastation. They've splintered it, stripped off the bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white, I mean, this is total destruction. What's going on there? Their branches are made white. Well, typically trees aren't white because they have what on the outside? Bark, right? What does bark do? It protects them, right? I'm not a farmer, but generally speaking, I think that's what bark does, right? Like bark protects the trees, okay? When a tree has no bark, what's going to happen? It's going to die because all the insects are going to get in it, right? You see what I'm saying? So this is what he's saying. Look at the devastation that they've done. This is not... Good. 
One last thing I want to notice, verse 7. It says, laid waste my vine, my fig tree. Bonus. This is extra credit. I'll forgive you for all of your not doing the homework. Deuteronomy 28. Where in the Old Testament did we last see? It's not Isaiah. It's not Locust. What book did we see? We talked about this two weeks ago, I think. Vine and fig tree put together. You guys remember it a little bit, maybe? Like, oh, vine, fig tree, it's kind of important, maybe. Maybe? Turn to 1 Kings 4. For, hey, that's all right, hey, that works. If you're, you might still be there, 1 Kings 4. You guys remember this? Okay, yeah, yes. This is, a, this is an important passage to remember. 1 Kings 4, verses 20 and following are describing this glorious time of Solomon's reign, okay? It is amazing. In fact, it's so amazing, it's like maybe all of God's covenant promises about the one who's going to crush the head of the serpent and, you know, the chosen people of of Abraham are going to be a blessing to all the nations and they're going to multiply. It's like maybe all these things are coming true, okay? It is amazing. He's talking about Solomon. And this is 1 Kings 4, I'm gonna start verse 24. It says, for he had dominion over all the region west of the Euphrates, from Tipsa to Gaza, over all the kings west of the Euphrates, and he had peace on all sides around him. Significant in Genesis 15, that's the allotment of the promised land, where God says, hey, this is going to be your inheritance forever. It's that one right there, those dimensions, Genesis 15 and 8, or 17, I think it's 15, 15 verse 8, something like that, but Genesis 15, okay? So, you know, a careful reader is going, whoa, is, is this the fulfillment of these promises? You come down to verse 25, in Judah and Israel, the United Kingdom, they lived in safety, there's peace, there's nothing bad happening, it is glorious, everything's hunky-dory. From Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, okay? It's the first time in the Old Testament you see these words, which are carefully chosen, brought together referring to this amazing time of prosperity, physical prosperity. Genesis 49 has mentioned that there's going to be a time when a ruler from the tribe of Judah is going to rule and it's going to be glorious and he's going to tie up his donkey. You guys remember this? He's going to tie up his donkey to the bush because there's bushes everywhere and like the donkey's just going to eat the bush and it's no big deal. And he's going to wash his uh, uh, teeth with milk because it's just like, like, there's just glorious prosperity. And this is happening in 1 Kings 4. There's this amazing time. But we're in Joel. Is that happening? What's happened in Joel? What does verse 7 say? It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. Joel is alluding back to 1 Kings 4.25 and saying, the good old days of Solomon are long gone. Nowhere to be seen. This is a horrible tragedy, okay? Travis, I'll get to your question in just a second. But you, as a careful reader and as a Jew at the time, you're maybe thinking, wait a minute, has God forgotten his promises? He says all these things are going to last forever. It's going to be everlasting. Is this going to happen? Yes. If you turn to Micah 4, Micah 4, if you're in Joel, just go back a couple books. This is amazing. Hundreds of years after Solomon, 
Micah is writing, he's prophesying, he's looking into the future. In fact, Micah 4, verses 1 to 4, are essentially an exact quote of Isaiah 2, verses 1 to 4. Super fascinating, but that's for another study. That's if we ever look at Micah someday, okay? But Micah 4, he's saying, hey, there's going to be this glorious future. It's going to come to pass in the latter days, which is a very important phrase in Old Testament prophecy, looking forward to the far future, in the latter days, in the last days. The mountain of the house of the Lord is going to be established. There's going to be this glorious future um, uh, where all the nations are going to come to the Lord. But jump down to verse 4. Micah 4, verse 4. He's tracking with me. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree. So Micah I mean, trace this back. This is where I find the Bible fascinating. Micah is tracing back through Joel and saying, yes, it's gone. But there's going to come a day even greater than Solomon in 1 Kings 4 where the Lord will actually reign on his throne, on the mountain, in the house of the Lord, and all the nations will come and Israel will dwell securely. You guys see that? I find that fascinating, okay? And that's significant, right? But here in Joel... He's saying, hey, we're, we're like, so, like, so like we went through like the mountaintop and then we went down to the valley and we went back to the mountaintop. So go back to the valley now. Like we're back in Joel, right? It's, we're back with the locusts, okay? And they've eaten everything. And it's terrible. And it's devastating. And he's calling the drunkards to wake up, okay? That was the first one there. Number two, now he addresses the priests. So turn the page, page five, Joel 1.8. So he's gone from the drunkards. He's called them to repentance. Now he's moving to the priests, Right? The leaders of the land, how do we know it's the priests? Well, verse 9 talks about the priests mourning, but also the parallels with verse 13. You'll see that when we get there. He's talking to the priests. He says, lament or wail. It's actually the only usage in the Bible of this word here. This is serious grief. This is meant to reflect a heart that is actually grieving, not just the external. We will clearly get to this when we get to Joel 2, verse 12, where Joel talks about internal repentance He's not saying that, you know, we shouldn't weep and wail and mourn over our sin. We should. But we should do that as a result of a heart that is genuinely sorrowful over sin. You see the difference there, right? The internal leads to the external, not vice versa. It starts there. This is serious. And he's calling the the leaders of the nation. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. I mean, this is a tragic verse when you actually, you, you sit and think, what's he, what's he saying here? Well, he's talking about either a, you know, engaged woman or someone, you know, just shortly after their marriage, like young married couple, you know, young bliss. And what's happened? Her fiance or her bridegroom has died. That's why you put on the sackcloth. I mean, this is tragic. He's saying, you know, you know, trade your beautiful wedding garments, right? That's when you get all dolled up to look great. He's saying, get rid of that and put on rags. That's how serious the situation is. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. This is true, genuine sorrow. Verse nine, the grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn the minister's of the Lord. And see, this is where I mentioned this earlier. This is the significance of what's going on with this locust devastation. They're not able to worship Yahweh as he said, this is how you are to worship me. They can't offer the offerings because they don't have the grain offering and the drink offering. They don't have it. 
They can't. They're cut off from accessing the covenant as God has called them to do. This is tragic. Now, and, you know, you guys, you know, we're reading this, and we need to go, man, you guys got to get it. Like, how can you not see this, right? That's what's going on. You need to wake up from your drunken stupor. This is the Lord. He's brought this about. I did want to mention this, you know, these, these sacrifices, because we don't, we don't do this, right? We're, we don't have grain offerings and, and drink offerings anymore. Um, Exodus 29, I wrote the verses down here, 40, I think, and through 42, talks about how these offerings that they offered daily were symbolic for the Lord dwelling with his people, right? They'd be a sign that the Lord was present among his people. Well, if that's not there, what's the implication? That the Lord is not dwelling with his people. This is not a good relationship going between them because of their sin. The priests mourn. Look, understand the severity of the situation. Follow the priests. Look, they get it. Mourn. The ministers of the Lord, this relationship, the sweet communion has been, has been severed. Verse 10, the fields are destroyed. The ground mourns. Even the ground is crying out like the people. I mean, this is tragic because the grain is destroyed. This, if you guys remember Deuteronomy 28, verses, verse 51, I told you guys to write that down. The curses, this is going to happen. You're not going to have grain, wine, or oil. Look at what he says here. Because the grain is destroyed, the wine dries up, the oil languishes. All three of them prescribed in Leviticus and Numbers as, hey, this is how you serve the Lord. This is how you um, offer sacrifices to him. They're all gone. And again, we have to think through as careful readers of this text, why? It's not just for the heck of it. God's trying to get their attention, right? Hey, wake up. You guys need to turn from your sin. So he's gone from the drunkards. He's moving to the priests. Number three, the farmers, starting here in verse 11. Verse 11, he's addressing the farmers. He says, be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. I just say that. Let me pause here. There's a call here. I mean, this is a clear command that the farmers of Israel would have shame, that they would be ashamed. Okay? I think especially in our current cultural context, this is I'm getting on my soapbox for a little bit. I'm getting a little bit away from Joel, but I think it's important is that God actually has a positive purpose for shame. Like, I mean, you even read this throughout in Paul, right? What does he say? He's like, I say this to your, your shame. Or what does he say? I am not ashamed of the gospel, okay? That God actually has a positive use for shame, both in terms of standing for what's right, to not be ashamed, but also that when we sin, we should feel shame. And not just stay there, and wallow in shame and misery, but actually to use that shame to what? Do something with it and turn, right? Nothing's changed. This is what God is telling Israel to do here, specifically to the farmers. Be ashamed. Use that to produce genuine repentance. Wail, O vine dressers. Another clear command. For the wheat and the barley, the harvest of the field has perished. All these crops, they're gone. Here we see again. It's like my favorite words in the Old Testament. It's like vine and fig tree. It's like, I love bushes. They're just, they're really cool in the Old Testament. Like, there's significance. They're not just random. The vine dries up. The fig tree languishes. And later Old Testament writers are going to pick up on this and say, hey, this is significant. The Lord's actually going to restore that. One of my favorite ones is Zechariah 3. I think it's verse 10. 
Zechariah is written after the return from exile. And again, it's like, man, are all the covenant promises, is everything going to happen? Zechariah says there's still a coming day when the Lord is going to reign. And, you know, he uses the language of vine and fig tree. I think it's Zechariah 3.10. Fascinating, fascinating. The vine dries up, fig tree languishes. Pomegranate, palm, and apple. This is all the trees of the field. He's being exhaustive here. They've dried up. And gladness dries up from the children of man. I don't know if you guys have seen this, but you see in these verses here, right? Verse 10 and 12, you see dries up four times, right? Verse 10, it dries up. Verse 12, three times, dries up, dries up, dries up. He's clearly alluding to not only famine, but also drought. We're going to pick up on this later, but also drought. But he's talking about the trees drying up and all this stuff. But then notice the last one he says here. And gladness dries up. Not trees, but gladness dries up from the children of man. I mean, yes, it's tragic that there's no food. Or, I mean, there, there's no you know, water for the trees and all this stuff. But literally, he comes to the end here, the kids have nothing to eat. Like, this is tragedy, right? Like, that's the real sorrow. Man, it's bad enough you can't worship God. You're going to die unless you turn. You must turn. So he's addressing these three different groups from three different viewpoints, right? You've got uh, drunkards, then you move to the priests, then you move to the farmers. He's trying to get them to all unite for one common purpose. It, like, regardless of who you are, you need to what? Repent. Turn from your sin, right? Exactly what Solomon called them to do in First. Kings 8. And so here's this beginning of this call to repent. If you're like, where, well, where is that in the text? Well, here's where he starts. Verse 13. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priest. So just like the bride of verse 8, you know, she had these wonderful garments. She's called to get rid of those and put on the rags. So is the priest. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priest. It needs to start with the religious leaders. Start with those who ought to know better, right? Same is true Today, put on sackcloth and lamento priest, wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth. Go to the temple and do this through the night, O ministers of my God. Because, here's the reason, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. He already mentioned that in verse 9. Look, you cannot worship God as you ought. But notice that the, the last line here, I think this is quite significant. Because grain offering and drink offering are, what does it say? Withheld. In verse 9, it says what? The grain offering and the drink offering are what? They're not withheld. What does it say in verse 9? They're cut off. Verse 13 says they're withheld. Like, like okay, if cut off, it's something like it's like, you know, so, like it, it stopped, okay? It, it doesn't, like that's all we know. It just, it stopped. But if something is withheld, that means there's a, party, an active party holding it back, right? You see what I'm saying there, right? Like one is just, okay, it stopped, but it doesn't tell us much more. It's just, it's, it's been cut off. Don't know by who. What does this say? It's been withheld. Who's the one ultimately doing the withholding? The Lord, right? The Lord is the one doing this to get the people's attention. Look, he is not pleased with your disobedience. You're walking in sin, which is why he brought the curses for your disobedience. So wake up. God is the one doing this, and he's calling them to repent. Verse 14. We're doing good on time here. I'm actually really surprised. Verse 14, he's continuing this call. 
to repent. He says, consecrate a fast. Consecrate, you know, sometimes it's not a word we use. It's not a word we use every day. Consecrate. It's literally from the same word, um, Kadesh, holy, right? Set a day apart as holy, okay? This is to be set apart by God. This is a holy event. Again, true repentance. Consecrate a fast. This is purposeful. Lord, please have compassion. Please forgive. Relent from this calamity. Relent. Stop this disaster that you're bringing. And this must come from a sincere heart. Consecrate a fast. I wanted to, this is a very sobering verse. You don't have to turn there. Zechariah 7, verse 5. You want to write it down? Zechariah 7, verse 5. just on this notion of fast. It says, Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me. Say to all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? And the implication is no. But I mean, that is a powerful condemning verse, right? For those of us who are so easy to quick to, hey, Lord, look at what all I did. Like, look at this. I've, I've done all these things. Lord, did we not do all these signs in your name? And did we not do all these things? Was it for me that you did those things? Right? It's not just, hey, consecrate a fast, because as long as you do the thing, I'm going to be pleased. It's you do the thing because you have a genuine heart that is grieved from your sin that is turning from you. You see what I'm saying there? That's what Joel is saying. Call a solemn assembly. This is a serious time of reflection. Gather the elders. Get the leaders of the land Together, in all the inhabitants of the land, get everyone and bring them what? To the temple. Go to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord, Lord, have mercy in light of what's happened with all these locusts. Lord, please forgive us. Verse 15, this is the theme of the book. The theme of the book is introduced here in verse 15, the day of the Lord. This is fascinating. Alas, cry out in fear. Alas, for the day For the day of the Lord is, what does it say? Near. Now as a careful reader, we're reading through this. Okay, for 14 verses, he's been talking about locusts. And we've been reading Deuteronomy. And we've been reading 1 Kings. And we've seen how terrible the locusts are. Okay? But Joel here in verse 15 is not calling them to focus on the locusts. Not something in the past. He's actually warning them about something, what, in the in the future. So you actually need to consecrate a fast. You need to repent. You need to do all these things. You need to cry out to the Lord, not because of what's happened in the past, but because of what's to come. For the day of the Lord is near. You need to take rapid, serious action now, because if not, this is what's next, right? This is what is going to come. If you guys remember this, maybe Obadiah 15, that's when if Obadiah is written first, if Obadiah is ninth century, he talks about, for the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. All the nations, okay? This is a, in Obadiah's context, this is a day of judgment. The day of the Lord, this is not referring to just a, he's not talking about a 24-hour period. He's talking about a moment in time where God is going to intervene in a way that he never has before, okay? And primarily, we see here in Joel, that this is one of judgment, that the day of the Lord. So if you're wondering, it's like, okay, well, I'm not really sure what the day of the Lord is. Well, for starters, it's one of judgment. The day of the Lord is a day of judgment, not just for Israel, it's for all 
the nations. And what Joel is doing is he's taking the locusts almost as a precursor of saying, hey, this happened. And because this happened, and you know this is true because it is real and it happened, know for certain that this is going to come. Does that make sense? He's saying, you know this is going to happen because this has happened. For the day of the Lord is near. It's going to come. And as destruction from the Almighty, it comes. There's kind of a wordplay here, destruction um, and Almighty. Uh, destruction is um, shod and Almighty is Shaddai. Right? You guys, you know, heard that like, was that like an Amy Grant song? El Shaddai, El Shaddai. Lamar knows. <laughs> right? Oh, it's a name for God. Okay. It's, in, especially in this context here in Joel, it's not one of like, oh man, that should make me feel warm and fuzzy inside. It's actually repent. Because what? The one who destroys is coming. As destruction from the Almighty, it comes. Devastation, ruin, judgment are going to come from the Almighty. And so Israel, this is why you need to wake up. The day of the Lord is coming. Okay? This is what is on the horizon. Okay? The day of the Lord. I don't know if you guys remember my um, you know, like airplane analogy. You know, if you're flying from like L.A., you know, you're trying to go from L.A. to Jacksonville, but you got to do a layover in Salt Lake. You know, so you fly from L.A., you go to Salt Lake, you're getting on the plane to go to Florida, and your wife calls you, hey, when are you going to be home? You say, oh, hey, next stop is Jacksonville, even though you're actually a long ways away, right? Like, the shorter flight, you know, the one-hour flight is over. You've actually got, like, a five-hour flight next. But you don't say, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, 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 you know, it's like, I'm still waiting a lot. You just say, oh, hey, next stop, I'll be there soon. That's the next stop. You guys see that? It's almost the same thing with the day of the Lord proximity, nearness. Hey, this is going to happen imminently. This is the next, you know, tick of the clock, you might say, or something like that. Because of that, you know, it could be one week, it could be one year, it could be 10 years, 100 years. It, that's actually not the question. It's the next thing. Does that make sense? That's what's going on with the language of nearness, okay? I'm going to pause there if there's any questions, and then I'm going to try and run through a couple of verses. Travis, I just realized I forgot about your question. And I know we covered a lot of material cover, covering up your question. <laughs> yes. Yes. You guys laugh about Sky Monster, but you know what it means. You know, you know what it means. Actually, Adam, you might not know. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead, Travis. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so we would use the day of the Lord, and particularly thinking of eschatological, meaning end times, right? So when you come to the New Testament, I think the day of the Lord is used four times um, in the New Testament. First Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians, um, Second Peter, I can't remember the, the other one, but very clearly, by the, you know, you come to the New Testament, and the, the authors of the New Testament are saying, the day of the Lord is still to come. So that's where I would hesitate when people are saying, oh, you know, the day of the Lord, you know, has already happened or something like that. It's like, well, from the perspective of the New Testament, it clearly hasn't, okay? And so, yeah, this is why also I think I'm getting ahead of myself, but when you come to Joel 2, Joel 2, which by the way, this is, I, I will pause here, this is a good place to stop. But by the way, from here on out, pretty much, Joel is going to be talking about the day of the Lord, okay? 
he's going to interrupt it at certain points, but he's pointing forward to this big window of time, okay, where all these things are going to happen, okay? Um, and he's using, again, now, it's not as simple as, like, the day of the Lord is, you know, this one thing that's going to happen way in the future, okay? He's actually using day of the Lord to say, okay, like locusts, okay? He's using this, hey, the day of the Lord is near. It's, it's like the locust, but it's going to be way worse, okay? And he's going to pick this up, like, so for example, in Acts 2, if you guys have the whole note packet, you're going to see this. In Acts 2, Peter picks up and he quotes from Joel 2.28, and he's talking about the outpouring of the Spirit, okay? Well, the outpouring of Spirit is not one of judgment, okay? And this is where actually Joel's contribution to the day of the Lord is unique, because in that context, you know, the outpouring of the Spirit, that's actually a blessing. That's not judgment. But that's going to happen before the great day of the Lord comes, okay? But do you see what I'm saying there? It's not as easy as just saying it's like, okay, it's, it's right here. But there's actually going to be a lot of events that prefigure the big one to come. Does that make sense? Kind of a little tricky, which we'll get there when we talk about it. Lamar. Yeah, and if you guys remember the, uh, the uh, handout I gave you guys last week, I gave you all the mentions of the usage of the day of the Lord um, in the Old Testament. But you also see passages, especially like Zechariah 14, just dealing with the Lord's return. It just says the Lord has a day. It doesn't say exactly grammatically day of the Lord, you know, um, you know, Yom, Yahweh, something like that. It isn't, you know, in Hebrew, but it's referring to the same day. It's talking about the same segment of time. Yes. Yeah, and this is tricky, so like, to get ahead, because to get ahead, like, the New Testament authors, so the Old Testament is saying, in the last days, all these things are going to happen, okay? Well, when you come to the New Testament, the New Testament authors are also clear that the last days have begun, okay? You guys remember Hebrews 1? You know, long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets, right? But in these last days. God has spoken to us through his son, right? Um, you also see it in, in John, right? Where John talks about, you know, and, and again, he's kind of picking up where, what Joel is doing, right? He says, you know, a little trail, I've told you that, you know, Antichrist is coming. Surely Antichrist has come. So there's this tension in the New Testament uh, with what many scholars will say, the now, they, they call it the now and the not yet, or the already and the not yet, where there seems to be the beginning of, what I would say is this, is the beginning of this age of fulfillment, okay? So if you're talking about Sky Monster, remember Sky Monster? Ken, you know what I'm talking about, Sky Monster, right? Yeah. Sky Monster's going to come, he's going to destroy all this stuff, okay? It's almost as if the Old Testament is saying, hey, all this stuff is going to happen, Sky Monster's going to come, and when you come to the New Testament, they're saying, hey, sky monsters come, all this stuff is starting. Okay. So has all this stuff been fulfilled? No. Yeah, it's in the process, right? It's begun. Okay. I can't remember how I started talking about that. But. Oh, it's a blessing, yeah. Joel 2, yes, yep. Yeah, because, and, and this, is, this is important, this is where you go back to kind of the mountain illustration. I talked about this in Old Testament too. But the prophets, again, they know what they're prophesying. 
1 Peter 1.11 is very clear. They talked about the suffering of the Messiah and his subsequent glories to follow. Okay, Messiah is going to suffer, and on the other side of suffering, there's going to be immense glory. Okay? But they didn't see like, when that was going to happen. They knew it was going to happen. Okay? But you kind of see in the Old Testament, there's these prophecies, especially like in Isaiah, where it's like, hey, there's going to be, you know, the suffering servant is going to be struck down, and there's going to be a glorious restoration. Okay? They're, where they're putting it kind of side by side. Well, when we come to the New Testament, it's clear that those actually didn't happen at the same time, that some of them happened with the first coming of Christ, and some of them are going to happen with the what? Not your question. Second coming of Christ, right? There's actually a great deal of prophecy left unfulfilled. Do you have a question? Yes. It's going to deal with blessings as well. And that's actually one of the unique contributions of Joel. Is Joel 2, I mean, if you have the whole packet, you just turn ahead. Joel 2, 28. And it shall come to pass afterwards. You, who has the packet here? Glory. So you can see this. For those of you who don't have the packet, you've got to turn there in the Bible. This, this is fascinating. We'll, we'll, yes, yeah. We'll get there when we, when we get there. But if you look at Joel 2, 28, says this, and it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. All this stuff is going to happen. You have Joel 2.17. Look at what Peter says. Someone read the first line of Acts 2.17. And in the last days. So Peter is actually helping us interpret the Old Testament and the age of fulfillment, right? So of all the, you know, those other prophecies in the Old Testament, hey, in the last days, in the last days, in the last days, when did the last days start? Peter said it's begun. In the last days, this is going to happen. And he's picking up and he's saying, hey, this is what Joel said. In the last days, this is going to happen. And that is what happens at Pentecost. You could say that. We'll, we'll, have to, we'll have to talk about that when we get there. I'm not sure exactly where I stand on that. I, I, th I, th I, think, I think what I would, yeah, what I, think, I think I would say is the last days begun with the advent of Christ. Kind of as Hebrews 1 says, you know, in these last days he's spoken us through his son. And that's the, because the prophets clearly prophesy what? The suffering of the servant, right? And that's kind of the. Right. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, so that's why when you, so. And I think the apostles understood this too, is because when you come to Acts 1 6, after the sufferings of the Messiah, right? I'm getting ahead, but this is important. Kind of. I don't know if we were going to talk about this class, I'll talk about it now, right? So the Messiah suffered. The Old Testament was very clear on that. Acts 1, he is risen from the grave. He's talking to his uh, apostles, you know, for 40 days. He's talking about the kingdom. And then Acts 1 6, the apostles ask him, Lord, is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? I don't think they're dumb. I think they're reading the Old Testament, and also Jesus was just talking to them for 40 days, and they're saying, okay, the suffering happened. When's the, su when's the subsequent glories? When's all these glorious promises that we're going to see, especially in Joel chapter 3, when are all those things going to happen? And he's, what does he say? It's not for you to know the time, right? But you're going to be my witnesses. He's not saying, oh, actually, actually everything that the Old Testament said, it's actually not happening 
and it's just, sorry, gotcha, haha, never saw that one coming, did you? It's like, yeah, we didn't, because that's not what it says. Um, no, he's saying, it's not right now, it's going to come. Does that make sense? Yeah, good question. Good stuff. Is this exciting? I love Joel. Joel's got good stuff. So where did I stop? Verse, verse 16? We got to verse 15? Okay, that'll work. Hey, that's good. So we'll, we'll finish chapter 1, and then we'll jump into chapter 2. Chapter 2 is crazy. This is, no, I'm serious. There's an escalation when you go from Joel 1, because some people will say Joel 2 is actually just talking about, like, the Babylonian army, or it's talking about the Assyrian army. I want you to get, this is your homework, okay? This is your homework. I'm jumping it down because you guys all failed. Deuteronomy 28. Just read Joel 2, 1 to 11. 11 verses. Come on, people. We can do this. We can do this together. I'll even read it with you. We're all in this together, okay? We're all in this. Joel 2, 1 to 11. You can do it, Charity. You can do it. And here's, here's what I want you guys to, if this is, I'll do the extra credit question first. Are there any passages in the New Testament that this passage makes, makes you think of? Read, no, 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 save it for next week. Joel 2, 1 to 11. Are there any, any of these verses that you're like, okay, this sounds like something in the New Testament or the Old Testament, okay? And any type of cross-reference. What does this make you think of, okay? And secondly, I want you to think of this. Is this just talking about locusts? Is this just talking about some, you know, army like the Babylonians or the Assyrians? Or, and by how I'm asking this question, you should know the right answer. Or, is, it's not the locusts. Or, or is Joel describing something else? In other words, is this some crazy eschatological nutso army, the like of which we've never seen before? Okay. Option three is, is probably the right answer. Okay. All right. You guys are dismissed. Looking forward to next week.